Good afternoon, everyone. This is Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3 FM, Northampton. On the air and live streaming at valleyfreeradio.org. And I'm Amy Landau, and you're listening to Under the Surface. Thanks for joining me today. My guest for today is Dr. T. Stephen Jones, a man I once knew simply as Steve while we were neighbors in the same community here in Northampton. But since then, I've come to discover a lot more about Steve I never knew. Steve happens to be a remarkable and extremely accomplished man known for his long and distinguished career as an epidemiologist. In particular, he's known as a national leader in the prevention of HIV, viral hepatitis, and drug overdose among injection drug users. From 1990 to 2003, he was the policy expert for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in this area after having served in a series of director positions related to this work. But even before that, from 1979 to 1987, Steve worked on CDC international health programs promoting childhood immunization in Latin America and child survival programs in Africa. He was a key participant in the successful World Health Organization's smallpox eradication programs in India, Bangladesh, and Somalia. Did you get that? This man, Steve Jones, your neighbor, helped eradicate smallpox. Today, Steve is an independent consultant on the public health aspects of drug overdose and bloodborne infection prevention among injection drug users. He's also a consultant to the New York State AIDS Institute on Drug Overdose Prevention, associate editor of Public Health Reports and consultant with Global Evaluations and Applied Research Solutions. And I'm sure he'll correct me if anything I said there was incorrect. So welcome to the show, Steve. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you very much, Amy. I'm glad to be here. Uh, That was quite an introduction. (laughs) Did I get that right? I think you got everything right, except I'm not working with New York State anymore. Okay, I thought I wasn't sure about that. So let's see, I'd like to start with your work to eradicate smallpox (laughs) in India, Bangladesh and Somalia from 1974 to 1979. My listeners may not know much about smallpox, and I confess I had to educate myself on it. I learned that this deadly disease began thousands and thousands of years ago, and that the last natural outbreak, I'm not sure what an unnatural outbreak is, uh, of smallpox in the U.S. occurred in 1949, and this disease killed 300 million people in the 20th century alone. A third of those infected died. Can you tell me and my listeners something we might not know about it, what smallpox does to the body or anything you'd like to share? Well, it's uh, you're right. Uh, smallpox, uh, the origin is probably uh, when people kept animals in their homes and there was this transfer of uh, animal viruses to people. And so eventually you got uh, smallpox, which uh, creates, has this, uh, starts with a fever and people feel very sick, and then they develop spots all over their body, which become pustules and uh, can be in the eye and blind people. And as you said, for the the major smallpox, thirty percent of people died. So it was a, and it was a regular part of life uh, for people prior to the beginning of vaccination against it, and it was just kind of a wonderful miracle that we were able to eliminate it, eradicate it, end it. The last natural case was in almost 40 years ago in Somalia. Mm -hmm. 
and there were there was an outbreak after that which might not be called natural but which was when people an, an ex, a scientist in the united kingdom was working with smallpox in his in his lab and it got out and infected a couple of people and killed was that where was that it was in britain oh wow and that was fairly recently no that was uh i 78 79 it was pretty soon after the after the last natural mm-hmm. infection. But wow. it, it was a gruesome uh, problem. It killed w- one person from smallpox, and, the, and the, the scientist was so upset about it that he, he killed himself. Oh, really? Wow. It was gruesome. Yeah, that is t- tragic and terrible. Um, so while smallpox was non-existent in the U.S., it's my understanding it was continuing to spread in other parts of the world, in India, Bangladesh, Somalia, where you were stationed. And my understanding is that you were out in the field with a team of others actively working to find people in each of these locations and to vaccinate them. Is that right? And what else did you do? Well, I, um, I'll just go back to how I got started. Okay. Uh, I had worked for the what was then called the, the uh, Communicable Disease Center in uh, Atlanta, um, and as a way to avoid being a medical officer in Vietnam, and we can see those what happened in Vietnam on the television nowadays. And I uh, received a letter from the CDC saying that they were wanted people who would volunteer to work for three months in India on smallpox eradication. And I, I, you know, I basically thought that it was. That was going to happen, and I would have wanted to be part of it because I thought that was a pretty amazing accomplishment. So I signed up in uh, the blink of an eye to to go to India, and I got there in June of seventy four. Why do you think you were specifically invited? Well, they were inviting the the CDC has this wonderful training program called the Epidemic Intelligence Service or EIS. And uh, there are a lot of people who went through that program, and I think almost everybody got an invitation because they were really looking for people to volunteer to go to India because they needed help. Mm-hmm. It was a huge epidemic in India at that point. Mm-hmm. So I I uh, saw my first case of smallpox. I was assigned to a, uh, a district that was near the Nepal border, and uh, we had about 100 separate outbreaks in different villages around Muzaffarpur. And I had a, a couple of Indi- an Indian uh, uh, helpers, uh, who mm-hmm. a driver and um, somebody, and we went... You had a translator, right? I had I needed a translator in the beginning, but mm-hmm. I, I learned Hindi reasonably well. Wow. Uh, but it... Um, we we met with the authorities in the in the in the district, and we went from outbreak to outbreak, and uh, tried to inspire people to work harder and uh, supervise the work and uh, vaccinate people who were refusing to vaccinate be vaccinated because that as a as a foreigner coming into India, I had a little more success with that. Were you yourself doing the vaccinations? Mostly, you know, there were a lot of vaccinations to be done, and uh, mostly it was it was uh, volunteers recruited on the spot or uh, uh, people from the health services in this uh, 
district of Muzaffarpur. So you were um, kind of overseeing this whole operation in a way? Yeah, quality control and um, checking how the things that people you did is you if you had a case of smallpox in a house in a village, you listed everybody that lived in that house, you vaccinated everybody, then you went from house to house nearby and you listed everybody that lived in the next house vaccinated them if there were people who were absent you want you tracked them down and mm-hmm. and you had to keep that um, going for a couple of weeks until until you were clear that there was no additional case and um what was your reaction when you saw the first person you'd ever seen with smallpox well it's Smallpox is a very uh, gruesome-looking disease, yeah. and uh, you know there there and there's a huge range. And some people have a relatively small number of these uh, pustular pox, and some people have uh, they have the 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 pustules are are confluent there, so that that person has nothing has skin that's just basically. Uh, coming off and it's uh it's wow it that that's the worst possible thing to see as a case and then cases in babies and uh you know i i think for myself and for people who were involved in the program um smallpox was an unmitigated evil mm-hmm. there was i don't think we have any um we don't know of any any good side uh, to smallpox. There's no there's no mm-hmm. redeeming v- virtues of it. So mm-hmm. it it um, and it's so we you know that was part of the inspiration for working against it is that here you had this awful disease that killed thirty percent of the people who got it who which was made gruesome infections was terrible for. For pregnant women, it was a near death sentence for pregnant women, mm-hmm. and uh, we had the opportunity to do something about it. Right, and I know that um, in India, they, there are even some Hindu deities that are related to smallpox in some way. And I don't know too much more about that, but you mentioned that sometimes you'd have to convince people to to be vaccinated. Yep, there's uh, there's a one of the. Hindu gods and goddesses is uh, one named Shitlama, mm-hmm. and Shitlama is uh, has a an image with a uh, in which they, they ha- she has a basket that you use to uh, winnow rice because uh, she's basically the goddess of of uh, illness illnesses that have rash. So mm-hmm. it's chickenpox, smallpox. And uh, measles, mm-hmm. and uh, there were some people who felt that if a case of smallpox occurred in their home, it was a blessing, mm-hmm. because it was a blessing from Shitlama, and uh, that was one of the reasons that people didn't want to be vaccinated, and uh, that wasn't very many people. Most people accepted vaccination. Mm-hmm. So, but you did sometimes have to convince people. What yes. did you do to convince them? Well, uh, I would talk to them, um, and there's this uh, 
gesture of respect in India, and that's touching a person's feet, and I would do that. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I would uh, vaccinate people, even if they didn't want to be, which mm-hmm. was overdoing it, and I know that now, but I was in the midst of uh, inspired um, efforts to get rid of this terrible disease. And you had to prevent other people from contracting the disease. That That's that's basically the, the system was that you vaccinated people who were at risk, who were exposed, and if you did it, if you did it uh, within eight or ten days of the time they were exposed, then you could actually s- prevent them from getting infected. Mm-hmm. So it was a was a powerful intervention. Mm-hmm. And is it true that smallpox is one of the only, one of only two infectious diseases which has been eradicated in the world, or was it the only one? Because I read something about Rinderpest as right. the other one. Yep, and and there the difference is uh, people and animals. And Rinderpest is a disease of cattle, as I remember, mm-hmm. and uh, smallpox is a disease of human beings, and uh, there are other candidates. Okay. Uh, they're close to eradicating polio, and they're close to eradicating a a uh, gruesome worm infection that people get under their skin Ooh. called guinea worm. Wow. Which is, and the, both of those are hopefully going to be eradicated. I didn't know polio was still not eradicated in some parts of the world. Well, there it's... It's been difficult uh, in areas where uh, there's conflict. So it's Afghanistan and Pakistan are, and uh, northern Nigeria are, both, are all three places that, are, that it's, it's difficult. And, and the same was true for smallpox. If you had smallpox flourished in places where there was conflict also. Mm-hmm. And um, so you also, you were in India, you were in Bangladesh and Somalia. Um, what were, were, were there differences in the experiences because of the, I mean, how, how were they different, those experiences for you? Well, um, India was uh, where I started and where I got the experience of how, what you do to control the outbreak and eradicate the disease. And uh, it was a wonderful experience because there was a, a really close working relationship with the, the government, mostly anyway, and there were a lot of colleagues from India, and there were um, a lot of, co- it was an international effort, so there were Russians and uh, Czechs and Poles and people from the United Kingdom who were all working on getting rid of smallpox. Bangladesh was a somewhat different experience in that the health systems in Bangladesh are nowhere near as well developed as in India. Mm-hmm. So it was more, we were more the main force of getting things done. Oh. And Somalia was similar in some ways to that because Somalia, this was a time before Somalia was a failed state and it was actually still functioning to some extent. And uh, but But the WHO smallpox efforts were the main reason in Somalia. Mm-hmm. And after this work, I know you were you were responsible for the formulation of U.S. policy on smallpox vaccination of civilians for the CDC and the treatment of its complications. Uh, yes, and uh, it's an interesting balancing of smallpox vaccination um, because we know that 
that uh, with classical smallpox, 30% of the people who got infected died. And uh, and the vaccine, which was originated by Jenner in the 1700s, um, is a very powerful vaccine that gives a, a immunity that lasts for 10 years. And it also makes some people quite sick. And it makes some people... Ooh. It kills some people who have uh, imperfect uh, uh, immune systems. They have problems with their immune system. So the smallpox vaccine, uh, vaccinia, is a live virus that you you inoculate into the skin on the arm, and it grows, and it uh, uh, provokes an immune response. So you get a uh, something that looks like the pustule of a of smallpox on the arm. And um, then that that's cured among 99 point, I don't know what percent of the people. Um, and some people, because it's a live virus, it continues to grow. Uh, and uh, if the person doesn't have a good immune system, it can uh, cause big trouble and kill some of the people that are vaccinated. So did that happen while you were out in the field back in that period in India? You know, I, I didn't see that so much because we we tended, um, you know, we were there early. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and I think the, the intriguing thing is the balance between uh, protection mm-hmm. and cost, and cost not in terms of dollars and cents, right. but the cost in terms of, 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 uh, the vaccine causing trouble and mm-hmm. killing some people and making some people very sick. Mm-hmm. And if you're facing the, the situation where you have 30% of the people get infected are going to die, then the, the fact that, that some people get quite sick and it's like less than 1%, um, then that's that's a fair trade-off. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the United States, after you, as you were correct, in the last outbreak was 1949, we had introductions from overseas. Oh, but uh, as as smallpox was getting closer and closer to eradication, it became clear that you didn't want to continue to vaccinate people in the United States and put them at risk because oh. their risk of getting smallpox was approaching zero. And the problem was that. Smallpox vaccine was it was uh, viewed as a, a as a tonic, maybe the wrong term, but it's some people thought it was uh, it was it would help their health, and so some people were getting vaccinated, even though smallpox vaccination for prevention of smallpox was discontinued, and some of those people got into deep trouble, and so we I helped document those problem cases in the United States to el- help eliminate the availability of smallpox vaccines so that people wouldn't um, wouldn't get wouldn't yeah. be at risk of getting the complications of the vaccine. Wow, this is so interesting for so many reasons because my next question was going to be to ask what are your thoughts on the anti-vaxxers who persist in believing, not to get into it too deeply, but you know the people who persist in believing that there's a link, say, between autism and measles, mumps, and rubella. I think the doctor who said that his studies were fraudulent, he was disbanded. 
But what are your thoughts on that topic of the anti-vaxxers? Well, um, you know, there's always been, and even with smallpox vaccine uh, in the United States in the uh, 1700s, 1800s, there, there were people that thought it was a bad thing, even though in those days you were exposed to the risk of dying from it. Um, and I think that there's always there are always people that question what uh, what what some things that are proven mm-hmm. to be okay and and I think there's a uh, sort of conspiracy it's probably not fair but the people who just don't think that uh, they don't trust what people say mm-hmm. and uh, it's unfortunate I think that's increased in mm-hmm. the last. 20 years, and uh, there's no evidence that autism follows vaccination, but uh, Mm -hmm. people hang on that, and they feel like they're being, uh, that the experts don't know what they're talking about. Are you sympathetic, though, towards people who um, don't want their children vaccinated at all, or or do you really think that's foolish? It's... um, It's a strange situation in the following way. You know, we used to have um, we used to have lots of cases of tetanus and diphtheria um, and measles and smallpox, and people saw the ravages of those diseases, and it wasn't hard to convince them that it was important to vaccinate. But uh, you know, the vaccination is very successful, so to a large extent, those whooping cough diphtheria, measles have essentially disappeared, so nobody sees the threat that they represent. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an understandable reason that people don't know know what's at stake. Because they haven't actually experienced the the threat. You know, it used to be everybody got measles and everybody got chicken pox Mm -hmm. and some people got diphtheria and and stuff. That wasn't universal, but... Mm -hmm. I certainly had chicken pox and measles as a kid, mm-hmm. and uh, so people knew what it was like, and they knew that those were bad things to get. Mm-hmm. And I read that small the smallpox vaccine with the bifurcated needle was ordered for every American after 9-11 and the anthrax scares. <laughs> Is that true? What, what, what do you know about that? Well, um, I was working at the Centers for Disease Control at that time, and um, the anthrax episode was pretty scary in the sense that there were, and I don't remember the numbers, but there were postal uh, people that worked in the post office that got sick. There were envelopes that were sent to senators and uh, high officials that had anthrax right. in them. And uh, there was great concern that smallpox might be possible new uh, bioweapon. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that was because it's been well documented that the Soviet Union it worked extensively, had thousands of people working on getting smallpox as a weapon. And uh, <clears throat> so there was, con- and then they dis- when the small, when the Soviet Union disbanded these t- high level technicians and everybody else that had worked on smallpox as a weapon, they were, they, they uh, no longer had jobs. And the fear was that the smallpox, some 
somebody might have taken smallpox, the virus that causes the disease, and uh, put it in the hands of of people who have uh, bad intentions. Mm -hmm. So we at CDC um, organized uh, getting ready for that possibility, and and those of us who had seen smallpox. So you were part of that decision? Um, it, the decision was made at a higher level, but uh-huh. I was one of the people that had worked on smallpox that was recruited. Mm-hmm. And we trained uh, CDC epidemiologists in how to diagnose smallpox and how it spread. And uh, we, we tried to uh, get them prepared for the possibility that smallpox would appear in the United States be, Probably somebody would be uh, inoculated with smallpox virus and then develop illness and be and be spreading the virus, and they would go on an airplane or they would uh, be in some crowded um, public space and infect a few people. Mm-hmm. And and it was it was a very uh, frightening possibility because I think that. <clears throat> Smallpox really scares people, and it would have been hard to hard to uh, get everybody vaccinated. The vaccine, the amount of vaccine available, wasn't large enough at that point, and so uh, I think it was uh, Vice President Cheney who was convinced that everybody in the United States should be vaccinated against this. And luckily, that did not happen. Oh, okay, because there wouldn't even it wouldn't have been possible in a way. Well, it was, by then they were, they I mean, we now have a stock of more than three hundred do, million doses of smallpox vaccine, so that people, the United States, could be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Wow! Um, and so now I don't want to open a whole can of worms. <laughs> I know this is controversial, and we are going to take a break soon. But I do want to ask at least one question about Lyme disease, since I have you here. And am I I right? It's now considered an epidemic. I've read this. And do you think that a successful vaccine will be created anytime soon? You know, there's no question about it being an increasing number of cases of Lyme disease and infection with Lyme uh, bacteria is occurring. I mean, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's increasing every year. And, uh, it causes tremendous trouble for people. And uh, it certainly means that a lot of people take doxycycline because they have a tick bite. Um, I think that uh, particularly in the Northeast, uh, that a vaccine might be useful. I'm not sure what the progress is on developing a vaccine. I don't Mm -hmm. know that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let's hope something comes about. Yes. Well, I think this is a good time to take a little break. And we're going to hear a song related to our discussion called The Ballad of Smallpox Gone. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back with Dr. T. Stephen Jones. Old King Plague is dead. The smallpox plague is dead. No more children dying hard. No more cripples living scarred with the marks of the devil's kiss. We still may die of other things, but we will not die of this. Raise your glasses high for all who will not die. To all the doctors. 
there's nurses too, and all the lab technicians who drove it into the ground. If the whole UN does nothing else, it cut this terror down. But scarce a headline said, the ancient plague was dead. They were filled with weapons new, toxic waste and herpes too, and the AIDS scare coming on. Ten new plagues will take its place, but at least this one is gone. Population soars, checked with monstrous wars. Creatures branded birth control, screw the body, save the soul, bring new deaths off the shelves. And say to nature, mother, please, we'd rather do it ourselves. Old peak plague is dead, the smallpox plague is dead. No more children dying hard, no more cripples living scarred with the marks of the devil's kiss. We still may die of other things, but we will not die of this, so no. We still may die of other things, but we will not die of this. And we're back. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ Northampton at 103.3 FM. And my guest today is Dr. T. Stephen Jones, a Northampton resident who is known for his groundbreaking work in epidemiology. And we just heard a song by Leslie Fish called The Ballad of Smallpox Gone, an appropriate song for this conversation, I thought. Okay, so Steve, you said you wanted to say a few more words about smallpox. Yep. Um, you know, uh, in our everyday lives to try and do this, that, or the other thing, mostly we have to settle for some sort of uh, partial progress and uh, improve things a little bit. And the, the part of the reason that eradicating smallpox was possible was the fact that uh, instead of settling for incremental progress— we could finish it, and we could finish it in the sense that if we if we vaccinated the right people and followed up, we could make sure that smallpox disappeared as a natural threat to human survival in the United in the world, and uh, that was a, an unusual situation, and it was part of the reason that people who worked on smallpox were incredibly dedicated because they knew they had this possibility to finish it, get it gone, completely removed from the the world. And is that what motivated you, too? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And as you saw somebody who had smallpox, so maybe this confluent stuff or the a baby, uh, you mm-hmm. were more and more inspired to say, I've got to... I got to work harder. Yeah, and as I understand it, you were working around the clock, seven yep. days a week on this. Yeah, long hours. Yep. Yeah. So, okay, um, Steve, I'd like to turn to your more recent work now on the prevention of HIV, viral hepatitis, and drug overdose among injection drug users. And as I mentioned before, Steve was the policy expert in this area for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from 1990 to 2003. First of all, why did you decide to make HIV prevention, injection, drug use, and its related complications your focus? Um, well, here, here's the story. In, in, um, in uh, 1987, 
I was uh, I wanted to shift from doing international health. I had some health reasons to not want to travel for hours and hours and hours in airplanes, and I um, I wanted to work on something. Uh, the things I considered were tobacco, injuries, and HIV. And in 1987, people were recruiting for HIV, so I, I easily got a job there. And with CDC was organi- was organizing a pro- program that was based on the fact that a test for um, prior exposure to HIV had been developed, a blood test. And so what we wanted to do is to have uh, systematically go to different kinds of public health clinics, for example, STD clinics, for example, prenatal clinics or TB clinics. And uh, test people in those settings to see how many people had actually been exposed to HIV and were carrying the vi- the virus. And one of the one of the groups that was um, one of the s- test areas was in methanon maintenance programs. Hmm. And I think you know there wasn't there was public health interest in STD and TB and prenatal and all of that, and there was very limited interest in methadone programs, I think partly because of the stigma that's involved. The stigma against drug users? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, and feeling sort of that if if you worked on drug user issues, you were uh, kind of promoting the drug drug use, use of drugs? No, you were... besmirched by the bad reputation of the drug users, in a sense. Wow. um, Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I think that I particularly was drawn to this because maybe uh, six months before that, my dad had been killed in a car crash because he was quite uh, intoxicated. So I think I had a personal understanding of uh, the importance of addiction and that may have been part of the reason that I chose to work on the methadone program stuff. And I didn't know anything about it. And mm-hmm. I learned on the job, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you had a personal tragedy in your family that motivated you. And um, my understanding is that a major focus of your work in HIV and viral hepatitis infection has been on advocating for needle exchange programs. I know you me- you mentioned the methadone clinics too, but the needle exchange or syringe programs where intravenous drug users can go without stigma to turn and use needles for clean ones. Is that right? That's right. And, um, you know, there was, uh, it was obvious that uh, the reason that a contributing factor for people getting infected with HIV who were drug users, injecting drug users, was whether they had access to sterile syringes. And at that time, there were all kinds of laws. Uh, I mean, and it, it was a real problem in Massachusetts, in New York, New Jersey. Uh, about half of all people who were injectors were infected with HIV. Um, and wow. a, a contributing factor was that if you you couldn't uh, buy a syringe unless from a pharmacy unless you had a prescription from a doctor. And if you had a syringe on your person and you were a drug user, you that was a felony or misdemeanor charge against you. So there was all sorts of reasons why it was uh, 
very difficult for drug users to get sterile syringes. So the program developed the idea of providing sterile syringes to drug users in exchange for their dirty, blood-tainted syringes, which had the potential of spreading the infection. And uh, it was extremely controversial, mm-hmm. extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me more about, it was controversial. I I read that the World Health Organization issued a statement, though, back in 2004 in support of these programs, and that the American Medical Association also strongly supported them. So, um, yep. And and there was, um, and that was was, uh, 15 years after we started advocating for it. It took a long time, and there were... There were people who said um, that providing syringes to drug users was uh, inspiring them or facilitating them on um, continuing to eject. Mm -hmm. There were people, there was a strong view among people in recovery, some people in recovery, that you 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 should shouldn't deal with a drug user until that drug user had decided not to continue drug use. Mm Uh, in other words, they had made a pledge or a decision to be abstinent. And the the answer to that it was harm reduction in the sense that you say, I'm not going to require this person to give up drug use. I'm going to work with that person to reduce the possibility that they'll die because of HIV or hepatitis C or something else. And knowing that some of those people will will get... Um, inspired to and able to to reduce or get or get rid of their drug use, and that a dead drug user was not likely to recover. Yeah, and it just seems like it took so long for uh, the U.S. to adopt this policy, right? And to and that and I do hear about more of these needle exchanges around the U.S., but I I I'm wondering like where do, where are we with that now? I mean, well, it. Um, I just talk a little bit about the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, there were many cities, whether it was Fall River or Worcester or um, Springfield or Holyoke, where there was this situation that about half of the drug users had HIV. And the Massachusetts uh, Health Department offered to those cities to fund a syringe exchange program and so that those drug users would have access to sterile syringes. And what in those days was required was that the local government, the city council or whatever, had to approve it. And um, all of those cities that I mentioned refused. Really? They were their, their public, their public elected officials voted against doing syringe exchange, and they did it multiple times. And they, in some places like uh, Holyoke, they had elections, they put it a ballot measure, and people rejected it. Mm -hmm. And now most most of those cities, almost, it's remarkable now because almost all of those cities are accepting the idea and have set up syringe exchange programs Syringe access and disposal programs is probably a better term. Mm-hmm. And the reason they've done that is because we have this incredibly awful 
epidemic of opioid use, of fentanyl, of a thousand, more than a thousand people in Massachusetts dying because of opioid heroin and fentanyl overdoses. And people now understand more about addiction and its impact. It's hitting more people. And so, and it's obvious that if you have contact with the drug users through syringe access and disposal programs, you can give them this magical stuff, naloxone or Narcan. That oh, can, right. I was going to ask you about that, too. Yeah, which, um, and it's, you know. It, That's the drug, the sort of overdose reversal drug. It's known absolutely. As, right? And mm-hmm. and suppose here in the studio we had somebody on the floor mm-hmm. who'd taken too much heroin and was turning blue because the heroin was discouraging him or her from breathing, and so they were getting... Their blood was getting uh, low on oxygen. And if we were to then to give this person the naloxone or Narcan, you can inject it, you can put it, uh, squirt it into the nose, they would wake up in a few minutes and sort of say, well, what, what, what happened? Uh, they would be confused, but they would be breathing and alive. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a remarkable intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is remarkable. And yeah, you talked about how so for so long there was this stigma against these programs, which made so much sense in terms of safety, health safety for not just the, you know, the user, but for the whole society. And also um, it saved money as well because of all the treatment for HIV. And that even I read that even Mike Pence finally supported it. <laughs> it <laughs> was it, uh, that was difficult. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's a. Uh, I think part of the, the the barriers in the various cities in the Commonwealth back in the 80s and 90s was race and class. Mm-hmm. And the drug users tended to be, uh, might be Hispanic or certainly mm-hmm. were not of the same... Uh, people of color. Yeah, mm-hmm. people of color versus the control of those cities was almost all in white whites. And... Uh, mm-hmm. There's a remarkable thing that's happened in the last uh, three or four years, and that is people have recognized that when you talk about people who are using drugs and you talk about them as addicts or junkies or whatever, that you're you're pointing a finger of uh, non-respect. Contempt, yeah. Contempt is a better word, yes, thank you. Um, and so what's been happening is that the 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 words that people use about drug use and drug users are being changed. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying substance abuse, which is again pointing a finger mm-hmm. of disrespect and contempt about the abuser, you take this more neutral stance and say somebody who has a substance use disorder, mm-hmm. which is not um, not not the blaming kind of thing that, and the is yeah. that the same as calling thinking thinking of it as an illness i've heard that some people think of it now as an illness and then that's how it's approached well that that it's it's related but even no matter mm-hmm. what is the what is the mechanism that causes it mm-hmm. when you change you know if you studies are done if you talk about people as abusers as addicts and all that you're less a uh, uh, caregiver of 
a nurse practitioner, a doctor, a nurse, is less likely to think of them as regular people. Right. So they will tend to do less to help those people out. So changing the language mm-hmm. is a a big step. Right. And basically, I think we were getting at is that now we have uh, such a huge opioid crisis that's affecting white people as well as people of color. And it sounded like you were suggesting that that, that could be one reason why we're taking it more seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that that's part of it. I, I think, you know, the the Commonwealth is mostly white anyway. So mm-hmm. right. when true. you get an extensive outbreak of, uh, of use of heroin and fentanyl and Oxycontin and things of that sort, you're going to mostly involve white people. Mm-hmm. But it has changed the idea that somehow uh, heroin was a a drug that was used by inner city uh, poor people in sort of ghetto-like settings. Mm-hmm. And now you hear these horrible stories. There was There's one in the paper today about uh, an athlete in a neighboring town who, at 19 years old, apparently died of an overdose. Wow. And that's uh, that makes people... That, that's... It's hitting near home, Mm -hmm. and people are therefore more recognize it as a bigger problem and are want to do something about it. Right. And I I read in the Gazette um, just I think yesterday that there's uh, that Northampton won a 1.7 million federal grant through Hampshire Hope, which is a local opioid prevention coalition. And this grant calls for um, overdose response teams and the purchase of. Narcan, vast quantities of the life-saving overdose drug reversal, uh, rever- um, overdose reversal drug, um, which you talked about before. Have you uh, were you have, have you been involved in that at all, or do you know well, people working on that? I I think that um, the Hampshire Hope is is a very good organization, and I think they richly deserved. That's probably the wrong term, but they really deserve to get this. Um, million and some more than a million dollars for Narcan and for um, setting up mm-hmm. systems to help people who overdose to be able to get into recovery. Um, and I would, um, I mean, I, I think they're a great organization and I am work with them to some extent. I'm glad to do that. So your work is mostly focused on Massachusetts? Well, it, uh, Massachusetts is the local stuff, and mm-hmm. I, I've i been to Holyoke and Greenfield and Springfield advocating for syringe access and disposal programs, and I work on, um, on programs that particularly deal with people who use drugs and provide them with overdose education and naloxone because... If somebody overdoses, the most likely person that's nearby is another drug user. And so we've advocated in the in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and around the country that the programs that de- deal with drug users themselves and provide them with naloxone, Narcan, are really important. And unfortunately, because of the stigma we talked about, <clears throat> A lot of the the idea that you would involve drug users and have programs to reach out to drug users is not totally popular. Mm-hmm. So 
we've been advocating for that as a really important step. Mm-hmm. It, the whole s- story kind of, I mean, the whole situation reminds me a lot about um, abortion in this country, you know, just the same, you know, not looking at the reality of what, what happens, what people really do, but just saying, you know, oh, no, we, ha- we can't um, offer that, even though it will happen anyway, but in an unsafe way where people will die, you know, not actually looking at the reality of what happens to people. Um, I, I agree. And, and um, I think there's all sorts of uh, judgmental stuff and stigma and things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that the, there is the st- statistics are so stark about overdose and overdose deaths. Uh, there, I usually try and wear a pin that says 91 died today. Mm-hmm. And 91 died today is a rough estimate of the number of people in the United States of America who died because of an opioid overdose wow. in one day. Mm-hmm. And if you take all the cocaine and uh, benzo other overdoses, the total is more like 120 to 130 a day. Mm-hmm. And that's a just extraordinary mm-hmm. number of people dying. It's in the order of of uh, 60,000 people mm-hmm. a year. And that's that's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It is. Well, I have so many questions I wanted to ask you. I wish we had endless time. But um, I want to make sure I get to um, this question, which is um, I understand that you're also a consultant on climate change, um, that you're working on that issue as well. And I imagine that this is in relation, perhaps, to the spread of disease. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about these major disasters happening now? Hurricanes and earthquakes, one after another, and their impact on public health, in terms of the spread of disease, and also maybe in terms of, you know, what's going on with drug users and their access to needle programs? Well, um, I went to a program yesterday, uh, where there were people talking about the effects of climate change, and also the threat of nuclear weapons. And the people who talked about climate change, it was really scary in mm. terms of the devastation that's been caused by these seemingly endless number of hurricanes, which are are fueled by hotter seawater and uh, hotter air temperatures and become bigger and more destructive. And uh, that's an obvious reason why you should be scared about it. And, you know, there was some discussion about here's Puerto Rico, which was basically devastated. And is the United States going to be able to mount a response to fix Puerto Rico? And there were presentations about how how uh, the health impacts about... Uh, food production, about air pollution, all sorts of things. The the climate change is a huge threat that's not understood. Mm-hmm. My what I'm working on right now is going from going to boards of health uh around this area and asking them to sign on to a letter to Governor Baker which says there ought to be health 
impact assessments before you build a new pipeline or a new Mm. uh, so-called infrastructure for so-called natural gas or fracked gas. That's very true. That makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense, and most most, uh, boards of health seem to be ready to do something about it. That's good. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's a small step. So that's what you're working on right now? That's the thing I'm, uh, yep, I've been working with the local uh, boards of health, the ones mm-hmm. that, in, they're the, in the bigger towns around us. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, yeah, so we don't have too much more time. But I just wanted, you know, we now, we're in this extremely difficult times right now with, with this climate denier as president, um, someone who's flouting his ignorance of science, seems to be working against the progress made in terms of health care in this country and international aid abroad. What is your hope for the future, and do you have hope? Well, um, I, I think what you have to do is, is uh, find – I do this for myself. I try and find things that I can work on that I think are going to make a difference. And uh, uh, it's obviously more difficult when you have – the man who is president of the United States and you have a Congress which is in the control of the Republican Party and a bunch of crazies. Mm-hmm. And you still, you shouldn't be uh, paralyzed. You've got to find things that you can do that will make a difference. And so I continue to work on drug overdose. I'm going to work more. On, I was inspired by this program yesterday uh, in in the real increasing threat of climate change. And I'm going to work more on that because I think that's just... What program were you inspired by? Well, this was a um, put on by PSR mm-hmm. and Climate Action Now. It was, mm-hmm. it was in uh, Hadley. Mm-hmm. And there were some extraordinarily good speakers who talked about climate change and who talked about uh, the risk of nuclear war as well. So it was a, a double... Uh, hit of troubles and tremendous difficulty that might emerge from both of them and that one might inspire the other. Mm -hmm. And you've been listening to Under the Surface. I want to say I'm Amy Landau, and I've been talking to the distinguished epidemiologist, Dr. T. Stephen Jones, a man I've known as simply Steve since I first arrived in the Pioneer Valley back in November of last year. And Steve, before we wrap up, I'm wondering um, if people want to learn more about your work or they feel stirred to act in some way to support and advocate for these issues, what can they do briefly or how how can they connect? Well, um, Certainly for climate stuff, climate change, there's this wonderful organization, Climate Action Now, which uh, is centered on Amherst and Northampton and meets regularly and produces that people should pursue that. Um, I guess uh, if people are interested in the drug use stuff, they could uh, contact me uh, at... uh, the following email address, which is a little complicated, but it's T-S-T-E-V-E, then a hyphen, then my initials T-S-J at Comcast.net. So that's T-S-T-E-V-E hyphen T-S-J at Comcast.net, and I'd be glad to talk with people. Great. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for being a guest on today's show. It's been a fascinating discussion and a pleasure having you here. 
And thanks Thank for, you. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody. Please tune in again next Sunday at 12 noon. And have a great week, everybody. Sitting in sun